Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Above the Bar podcast, where each week we belly up to the bar with a new guest, find out what they do, who they are, and what makes them great. So sit back, relax, and enjoy. I messed that one all up, folks. I was already doing the show and forgot to bring us up. Welcome back to the Above the Bar podcast, folks. It's your host, Sean. It's Wednesday. Uh, I don't even know what day of the week it is. What is it? It's April 12th. We are belling up to the bar today. I think it's kind of a fitting. I mean, we're a little bit off from, from you know, the semi-national holiday. So I think Jimmy is going to be the perfect person to have one here for this upcoming uh, semi. It's, it's only a... A holiday if you're a hippie i guess it's a hippie holiday coming up here but we're going to be talking we've brought with us a gentleman who uh i said was very influential in the rave scene he wrote a book called the ethical drug dealer we brought with us to belly up to the bar today with us oh why is my all my sound equipment is messing up here folks i'm a mess today why is my equipment messing with me there we go we brought with us today mr jimmy Fritz. Hello, Thomas. Peace. I was Greetings always... from beautiful British Columbia. Uh, so, so j- is it 80 degrees up there like it was in Albany today? <clears throat> no, not quite. It's a lovely spring day, though, and the tulips are coming up and the, the uh, blossoms are out and uh, it looks it's very spring-like. We just uh, we sat down last night, my wife and my youngest son and I, and we get those big, uh, what is it, Jiffy, Jiffy Gardens are called. And they're just the peat moss pellets and you put the water in and they grow. Yeah. We, started, we started all of our planning yesterday. So before we get too far into this and uh, Jimmy and I start just talking about gardening and everything else and nothing about what we're supposed to be talking about. Let's go ahead and get this thing going. As always, folks, over my right shoulder, we got the big board for sticker and a cause. If you got something that you believe, something you're trying to support, something you want to see happen, as always, you can reach out to me on Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, Twitter, Twitch, TikTok, Instagram, even our email. It's all the above the bar podcast. You let me know what you got going on. I'll give you the address where to send that sticker. You send me a sticker and I'll read about what you got going on live on the air for sticker and a cause. But uh, maybe your media, it's still stuck in the 90s and you're looking for somebody to bring it back up, up to date. Well, you want Media by Dibs. That's D-I-B-S. You can find Dibs on Facebook at Media by Dibs or on Instagram at Media by Dibs or on LinkedIn at Andrew Dibble. And you let Andrew know that you're there to belly up to the bar. He's going to give you a 10% discount on your first order and a free consultation. That is Media by Dibs. All right. The bar is open, Jimmy. You- All right. I'll have a pint of bitter, please. Uh, uh, you like better? I'm I'm going with a uh, rye, little rye. <clears throat> I'm little a rye. crown crown royale man for the hard liquor. Uh, you know, you know what somebody bought me? I don't like wacky liquors, and what I mean by that is, years ago somebody bought me a bottle, and I still have it sitting here next to me. Crown maple. Oh yeah, yeah, not a good idea. Now I just don't like. You don't want sugar in your whiskey. Thank you. Like, like, did you see like for a while there was the peanut butter whiskey that was real popular? Yeah, not a good idea. No, just I, I want my whiskey to taste like whiskey. I want, you know. Same with beer. I, I, you know, grew up drinking British ale and that's that's the kind of beer that I like. And it has a kind of a purity to it. There's a lot of different kinds and shades, but, um, you know, all these like sour beers and blueberry beer and fruit oh. beers, you know, that's um, it has no place in beer. Have you ever heard of Ithaca, New York? <clears throat> yes, I have. So I, my wife and I were up in Ithaca at Ithaca Brewing, which if you can ever see their grounds, beautiful facility. Sits on rolling hills and everything. And we're out there and I see this thing. It says sour beer. I'm like, well, I like sour foods. I like sour candies. I'll yeah. try this. One sip and I handed it right back to the girl and I said, can That's I? Horrible. I'm like, I don't understand how people drink that shit. I don't get it. I think they like it because it's different and they think different is good. Right. It's not always. No. It's not, it doesn't work. <laughs> but And we're not here to talk about beer and whiskey, but we will. Uh, we, we will talk about it all day, especially me. I'm drinking one of my favorites, which I got to get another bottle of uh, either New Scotland Spirits or this one. This is one of my favorites. Whistle Pig. 
Oh yeah. Six year rye. I love, I've decided that I, as much as I enjoy bourbon, I think I like rye's better. Uh, me too. I agree. Yeah. <laughs> I, I was just talking to a, a good acquaintance. Uh, she's on TikTok. She has a TikTok called uh, basic bourbon biatch. And she makes her, they grow, they do their own bourbons, almost they grow their own bourbons. Mm-hmm. And she said she doesn't like rye. And I tried to talk to her a little bit. She goes, I've only ever had uh whistle pig once and I didn't like it. And I'm like, you don't like whistle pig. You will never like rye. There's nothing I can do for you. I've turned all my friends onto crown Royale rye whiskey. Uh, with really? lots of ice yeah. and a dash of water. And now everybody drinks it. So when I have gatherings, I have to buy it by the gallon. Crown Make mistake. You should keep it to yourself if it's good. <laughs> I'll have to try. I have to look into that because I didn't <clears> know Crown <throat> had a rye. Rye's big here in New York because it's a New York grain. Yeah, yeah. But Canadian rye whiskey is uh, is a thing too. Interesting. Well, we have Empire Rye now, right? In New York, where it's everything comes from here. But we're not talking about that. So let's get into this. So Jimmy, thank you for joining us. Uh, I know we we make left turns on this show all the time. Thank you for joining me, brother. I appreciate you you coming out and hanging out with us tonight. If you're finding us through Jimmy, please, you know, make sure you give us a like, follow on all our social media. If you're finding Jimmy through us. I write books, by the way. I was about to say, well, that's what I wanted to talk about. Right so the, the first one that, that I wanted to talk to you about was your book, Confessions of an Ethical Drug Dealer. Confessions of an Ethical Drug Dealer by Jimmy Fritz, available at fine bookstores and everywhere. And it is on Amazon. <clears throat> I looked up the Amazon side to it. So, so let's get into that one for a minute. Define an ethical drug dealer for us. Well, an ethical drug dealer is someone that deals drugs that increase and increases your perception and awareness of the world and therefore enhances the quality of your life. And an unethical drug dealer is one that deals drugs that decrease your perception and awareness of the world and therefore decrease your quality of life. <clears throat> In a sense, I mean, I'm talking about the psychedelics. That's um, these are drugs that are not they they have a very low abuse factor because you don't I mean, you don't do LSD every day and you don't crave LSD and you don't have to do it all the time. You do it once a month, you know, or once a year. And um, that's the kind of uh, that's the kind of drugs I'm talking about. I'm talking about psychedelics, the ones that increase your your consciousness and, uh, and make you see the world in wonderful new ways. And therefore improve your life. Well, you could you had you had because when I was reading about the book, you refer to smart drugs and dumb drugs. <clears throat> right. So that's that's what we're talking about here. Yeah, like smart drugs increasing your awareness and consciousness, and dumb drugs just dumb you down and kind of anesthetize you. They're like self-medicating. Most people are doing opiates and coke and whatnot. They're they're trying to, you know, they're they're trying to mask psychological issues. Especially mm-hmm. with the opiates, you know, they're, they're, they're masking psychological pain. So yeah. I don't have any psychological pain, so <laughs> I don't need opiates. <laughs> I don't like cocaine. I've never, um, I've never liked it. It just makes me feel grungy and I want to go to sleep. <clears throat> so it's kind of works. So, yes, yeah, very strange. I used to try every couple of years and I'd do a line just to see where I was at with it. And um, every time it just like gives me a kind of a low-grade headache and then it just makes me feel grungy and i just want to curl up in a ball so it doesn't do to me what it does to other people some people it really fires them up and they feel fantastic and if it had that effect on me i'd probably do it more often (laughs) so now now i'm curious then uh from a i don't know what what personal research other than using psychedelics you've done but we've had some uh, we've had the uh, some psychedelic co-ops on here. We've had some other folks that I, I'm very interested. I've never done it myself. I don't think I'm a good candidate only because I've heard too many bad trip stories and I get in my own head. That's always been my, my whole thing with it. And that's very, very common. And the reason that those bad trips happen is because they do the too much and they do them at the wrong time or place. <clears throat> If you do it in the right time and place under the right conditions and the right dosage, you can't have a bad trip. Now, it's not like something that? that can just happen. You know, if you're in a really good state of mind and you're with some close friends and <clears throat> you're out in nature and you do a correct dosage, like a low dose to start with, you'll have the time of your life. Now, one of the things that, and I'm now, cause 
you really got me thinking right here now talking about you mentioned LSD. That is my understanding when it comes to people who are able to produce it, create it. That is the great mystery of the drug world. You know, who, who makes it, who's producing it. There's supposedly uh, not a ton of people on the planet still that make it. So to be able to find those folks is a challenge. So when you got into, was that one of your, one of the things when you were selling and involved in those good drugs, as you say, was that, you know, ever a challenge for you or did you have a direct line to it? Or was it the typical, like I had to have a plug and everything else to even get to that point? Well, that's why I started uh, dealing psychedelics in the first place was because I wanted to do them and have them. And I was uh, involved in the rave scene at the time. I have another book called, Rave Culture, an Insider's Overview, which is available at fine bookstores everywhere. Well, I was going to ask um, you about that one next because I, like, I was going to ask you, when did your rave culture start? But I want to know more about the drug. <clears throat> well, I saw, you know, I was raving regularly. Um, I was doing MDMA. And so were all my friends. Um, we were doing other things, just other psychedelics. And so it was important for me to get a good supply. So I, I uh, you know, I was very, uh, you know, judicial about finding a good supplier and testing things on myself first to make sure they're all right. And then I would disseminate them to my friends. <clears throat> so that's how it started with this um, idea that I wanted the highest quality and, uh, you know, to regulate it for myself and my friends. Because, uh, you know, it can be, you know, you can, you don't know what you're buying. Well, it's so, like a wavy great. I always think, of, you know, that just makes me think of wavy gravy in uh, the documentary about Woodstock. Yeah. Don't take the brown acid. Yeah. Stay away from the brown acid. You know. It's not necessarily that good, but it's your trip, man. So go ahead. <laughs> <clears throat> I remember that his name was Wavy Gravy. Uh, yes. That's I might be date I might be aging myself a little bit to the fact that I knew those things. So now so you you kind of those two cultures for you between the ethical drug dealer side and the rave culture. How did you even get him? Because we were just talking about this on our TikTok beforehand. I remember, you know, raves back in the early 90s, you know, to even find one, you had to know somebody who knew somebody, a flyer got handed to somebody. Then there was a little bit of the uh, the uh, AOL messenger board kind of thing. But yeah. how did you get involved in the scene? Well, I was introduced by a friend of mine, um, <clears throat> actually a friend of mine's son, in England and I used to babysit this kid when he was like six months old and one year old as a baby and then 21 years later he showed up on my doorstep in uh, BC and he said there's this new thing called rave and blah 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 and there's this new drug called MDMA and you should check it out and everybody's happy and friendly and it's a fantastic scene and the music is excellent so you know I was a bit of musician all my life so I was interested in the music and I'd never even heard electronic dance music before but uh yeah i went to this event and it sort of changed my life i was 40 at the time and had never done mdma and had never heard dance music and uh, it was a real eye-opener you know because i saw this new burgeoning culture full of optimism and energy and uh, you know clarity and uh, you know there was it was really inspiring it actually restored my faith in uh, human beings so, uh, yeah, I, I embarked on a journey. I used to go every, I went probably every weekend for 10 years and uh, also also produced my own raves. I had a, a, an underground rave collective called SPEC. That's the Society for the Perpetuation of Empathiogenic Celebrations. And I'd have 300 people on an email list and I'd find an underground location and uh, send out the email and instructions on how to come in and how to get there and, and then we do these uh, fantastic events and because it was the same people over and over again and their friends, you know, new people would come in, but it was basically the same core group. So it became like a really close knit group of people. Everybody trusted each other and everybody uh, had these amazing transcendental transpersonal journeys, you know, in, in a group situation. It was fantastic. I mean, it was, it was quite uh, remarkable. I saw many, many people's lives changed, you know, completely from then on how do you mean? mine included how do you mean that you saw their lives change 
well, they'd come in and they'd be kind of, you know, what is this and what's going on and what's happening. Some some people were like a bit socially awkward and, <clears throat> you know, they come from different different backgrounds. But as soon as the E hit and the music crescendoed and everybody was yelling and screaming their heads off, they just look around and you could see that they were just their minds were blown. And uh, they had this group connection and a connection to themselves and a connection to everybody around them that they probably never had before or never had to that degree. And you could see that it just it just changed them. And they were they were they were different people after that. They were they were better people. They were they knew yes. themselves better. They were better connected to themselves and to other people. So now we're talking, you know, you're not saying like, hey, I was in the race for a year or two or anything like that. You're saying 10 years that you yeah. were involved in this. What took you from being involved to saying that you were saying that you were done with it? My five-year-old decided to come down. Oh, I still rave on occasion. You can still watch yours. So you still so you're still now. How was that again? I think about that scene when I was a kid, and it was like you were saying, it was warehouses, it was yeah. it was very, you know, very much that underground you know it was kind of like uh what's the best it, what made it great was that you weren't supposed to be doing it or you were in a place that you weren't supposed to be how was that changed now you say you still do it today how was that scene changed today there's still an underground scene in many places there still is in uh, in in bc in various places that people do you know hit and run parties they do uh parties in the in the bush you know in the woods um, there's still warehouse parties, you know, where they'll just rent a place under false pretenses and just, you know, do a one-nighter. It still happens, not to the same degree. It's much more fractured now. It's not as unified a scene. It used to be, but it was unified with the music and, and MDMA in particular. Now it's kind of more, there's a lot more coke, there's a lot more K, there's a lot more, you know, these other drugs that kind of throw, the, throw, the, throw out the integrity. And the music's become fractured too. What do you so mean? So all the all the raves were pretty much uh, progressive house and trance at one time. Yes. And that's the type of music that really creates this uh, momentum, really creates this unity, and uh, everybody can kind of click into that beat. Now there's a lot of other, a lot of uh, forms that uh, are not that danceable. So people are there for different reasons. There's you know still you know a healthy sort of social scene. But it doesn't have that kind of transcendental power that the original rave scene had. So that's that has pretty much passed, I think. Almost like it's diluted a little bit. It's diluted with other with other things or other people that wanted to be involved in it. But wasn't that the rave scene, though, is bringing all these people that were looking for a new scene to be part of? Because it kind of popped up as almost the anti-grunge, I guess, or the anti-alt scene is the way i always saw it like if you were into alt rock grunge nirvana <clears throat> yeah world and you didn't have those weren't danceable songs unless you were looking for violence and then all of a sudden this rave scene which is very much a much more energetic positive bouncing around i can still remember my favorite rave beat ever was based on doctor who and somebody used the doctor yeah. music you probably know right. what you're talking about which look you even smiled when i said it jimmy you know what i'm talking about yeah yeah well there's a lot of that sampling going on and that was what was so great about the music it was taking from everywhere from past present and future and making this synthesis it was the first time that really happened in music there was kind of some world beat but this was the first time that it was actually you know, they were taking samples from, you know, speeches and everywhere and everywhere and anywhere. I mean, computer game noises to, uh, you know, to the Martin Luther King speech, to Doctor Who, to, you know, whatever. Everything was fodder. Everything went into the mix and included everything and everybody. That's one of the reasons it was so unifying. And It sounds like you, so you experienced the English rave scene, the Canadian rave scene and the U.S. Is that correct? Yeah, to some degree, yeah, yeah. Mostly, so, mostly Canadian, but you know, we went to the states for some big parties too. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna be that guy for a moment. Who does it better? Who does it better? Well, I mean, it's different in different places, right? Well, what's the difference? Is that? 
well, it's it's different if you're dancing at a party in uh, in Goa in India, you know, with the coconut palms and the beaches, and the, oh, you know, and you've got a a side trance outfit from Japan or Russia playing for twelve hours straight at 140 beats a minute, wow. or you're in California and it's all you know clothes and and big hats and candy, you know, all the way up the arms and you know, it's just a different, different flavor everywhere you go, but, um, it's the essence of it is pretty similar. It's just about this group mind experience. That's what's, that's what people are going for. So with all these, obviously all these experiences that you had throughout that scene and and what you had throughout your life. And I'm going to ask you an early question here because I'm curious where, you know, you said you got into this at age 40 Yeah. before then, what were you know were you into psychedelics were you into a party scene before then or was it kind of like i'm 40 years old i've been a banker for the last you know no no years. what were where were you at before that no i sort of uh i was a grade 10 dropout and then i started traveling the world and i was traveling around europe busking playing guitar in the street and um you know experimenting with uh hashish and lsd and at a very early age, I tell that that's that's the I call it a psychedelic travelogue and memoir. <laughs> and that's the uh, it's like my journeys geographically and psychologically told through the lens of, uh, of doing psychedelics in different places. So, yeah, it's been, a you know, I've been into psychedelics since I was 15. Wow. And folks, and I'm 67 you- now, so it's 52 years. Good God. It, look, if you're not watching the live, if psychedelics can keep you looking as young as Jimmy does right now, it might be something to it. And if you're That's interested right. in what he's got going on, besides all your Amazon and everything, you can check his website out. It's Jimmy, J-I-M-I, Fritz, F-R-I-T-Z, dot C-A, because it's in Canada. So it's Jimmy, J-I-M-I, F-R-I-T-Z, dot C-A for Canada. Go check it out. So, so you you were in that world, you know, 15 years old, coming up through it, getting involved. So you knew it. So it was really the rave culture was, was a culture that you had been looking for. It sounds like for a long time. Yeah. Well, it was, you know, there were different scenes at different times. I guess, you know, as you know, there was, there was, you know, a lot of this going on in the sixties. Yeah. There were lovings and beings. They were really proto raves. You know, they were, there was all part of the same progression. Rave culture came out of the free party scene in England. There was a, a scene going on in England in the early 80s, and it was the, called the free party scene, where people would set up in a field and they'd set up a sound system and they'd play like psychedelic rock and Grateful Dead, and people would do mushrooms and acid and dance all night in the cow field. And so that was happening. And then in Ibiza, uh, they were playing house music, and that came around in, you know, 83, 84. So they started playing house music, which was, a, you know, a, a, again, an evolution from disco through new style disco into into rave music. So that was happening. And those two things joined up in England in the summer of love. It's 87. And uh, the rave scene just exploded. It was a synthesis between, you know, the dance music and uh, the free party scene and that, you know, underground party scene and then MDMA. And those three things came together and that's what started the rave scene. Then it migrated to the East coast of the U S and then the West coast and then everywhere. Now you just said something very interesting in the States. We, we would call the summer love is the summer of 69 is the summer. Yeah. They have that same reference in England, but they refer to 1987. Right. Summer of love. Yeah. It was the second, the second summer of love because it was another, explosion of culture and art and uh sexuality and uh you know it's a social phenomenon it's a similar kind of social phenomenon as the 60s i've never heard that before that's really you know a a very eye-opening idea to think about that because i i I get what you're saying and uh i have to i i get corrected it's such an interesting so you say ibiza i say ibiza yeah, and I've partied there. Listen to me, folks. And I'm going to ask Jimmy to, to verify. Have you partied there before, Jimmy? I haven't, no. Okay. 
I will promise you, folks, you've partied anywhere you want to in the world. You have never on God's green earth partied like they do in Ibiza, Ibiza, whatever you want to call it. Um, it is a different animal. It is a level of wealth that people don't normally understand that can go on there. But you might have somebody that's on a $15,000, $20,000 one week vacation right next to somebody that hitched a ride on the back of a dolphin to just get over to that island. Yeah. What and year were you there? I was in Ibiza <clears throat> 1997. Okay. Yeah. Um, and we started off at this place called the Bull Bar. I still have somewhere a flyer from it. And it was a bar in the middle of Spain. For those who don't know where it is, this is an island off the coast of Spain, Ibiza, Mallorca, Palma. And um, they, everyone there is English, Irish, or Scottish, uh, a, a little bit of French. And I'll never forget, we were in the middle of a bar with a mechanical bull in an island in Spain. And you could ride the bull and all that. And they did all this wild stuff and a bunch of young Marines. And we met these young, these girls that were from an organization that supplied nannies for the wealthy people that were on the island vacationing. So they would get done and we would hang out. You'll appreciate the story. I'm going to tell you, Jimmy, I was hanging out with this young lady. Um, One of the Marines that was with me came over. He was hammered like a dry cat turd. He was so drunk. And uh, she had her friend with her, and she looked at me, and she goes, he is just pissed, isn't he? And I'm like, he looked pretty fucking happy to me. I didn't know the English term of pissed as pissed drunk. Right. I'm thinking she's talking about pissed in the States would be you're mad about something. You're pissed off. And that was was my first true experience in uh, learning phrasing from different areas. But Ibiza on that's where the bubble party started was in was in ibiza they started that whole thing yeah well that started out as like a rave scene and then it kind of morphed into this super club scene so the super club thing with the bubbles and you know that's that wasn't really that was an evolution you know into the clubs of rave culture because it went to different places and did different things but the real yep. rave culture was, uh, you know, started on the beaches there, started in all night, all night dance parties on the beaches. And it was only later that it went into the clubs and then it became the super club capital of the world. Oh, that's crazy. Now, yep. this is important. Our, our friend Nate, uh, and those you don't know it, Nate's going to be on here next week. If everything works out, folks, we'll see. We might have a, uh, a guest host because I'm going to be, I might be away next week. We'll see. But uh, Nate is asking did you have a favorite go-to rave party food like after the night was over like this is what you needed or even midday party food um i don't know you don't get very hungry on e if you've been you know if you've done six hits of eja in the evening <laughs> you're hungry you just yeah <laughs> you, you go home unless you go to the after party and do some lsd and go through the next day oh then by God. the time you sleep you're not thinking about eating you. Yeah. yeah but the next day, the next day afterwards, you want something carby. So, you know, a bit of, uh, you know, French fries and <laughs> something substantial. Jimmy, I got to ask you, have you dropped, have you, I got to ask that question. You're just kind of admitted. Have you dropped E ran through the night and then dropped acid afterwards just to keep going? Yeah. Every, every weekend. <laughs> Holy <laughs> For a number of years, because when I was throwing the parties, of course, I'd have to start early in the morning and we'd have to set up the party and set up the sound and set up the environment, decorate it and get the volunteers. And then we'd start the party at, you know, nine or ten o'clock. And then we go all night till seven o'clock in the morning, seven o'clock in the morning. We pack it all up, pack up the gear, sweep the place out, clean it with some volunteers. Then we go to the after party. And then at the after party, you'd either do a little bit more E or you do some uh, LSD and then party through that day and then go to sleep, you know, early the next evening. That was sort of the pattern. I did that for years. I couldn't do it now. You know, I'm, I'm definitely past that now. <laughs> you'd have to, you'd have to peel me off the floor. Yeah. I don't know how I did it either. When I look back on some of those weekends, it was like, I don't know. Uh, 
I don't know where I got that energy from. I don't have it anymore. I'm just like, uh, I'm, I'm out of gas now. <laughs> Look, Nate, there was a time me. when it was glorious. J just hearing you say it, we both we both need a nap just listening to you. I know, me too, yeah. I mean, so so I guess, you know, you've got the books, you've got um, Rave Culture, you've got, um, gosh, the, why is my brain not working? Eth the ethical Confessions of an ethical drug dealer. I don't know why the word confession wasn't the coming. Psychedelic travelogue and memoir available to find bookstores everywhere. So, so what, what, <laughs> what prompted you to, to kind of stop and say, Hey, I'm going to put this down. Like, was there, Hey, you I was exhausted. <laughs> you were exhausted. <laughs> <laughs> you were just tired, shagged like, out. Like, completely like, shagged out. So, I mean, were you taking notes through this? Like you had the stuff written down or did you have to kind of remember what was going on? I'm, I'm thinking here, like you're telling me you, you were high, you were higher than a hot air balloon this whole time. How do you remember what was going on at these times? That's very vivid, actually. I mean, I think if anything, MDMA improves your memory, you know, because you have you, your experience is that much more intense. And so, it, you know, it lodges in your long term memory better but yeah i wrote um after i'd after i'd been into it for a few years i thought well this is fantastic i should uh, tell the world because it was pretty much underground and nobody knew it was going on and i thought it was like one of the greatest cultural movements of the 20th 20th, 20th century so i uh, wrote the rave culture book because uh, i wanted to kind of you know let people know what was going on now now mdma i want to i want to stay with that for a second if I remember my teachings correctly, MDMA originally created by uh, German scientists for troops to, to keep them up and keep them going. When not exactly, but no. <clears throat> okay, correct. it was first it was first patented by the Merck Corporation, which is the German pharmaceutical corporation. I know Merck. Yep, and they were looking into a kind of a blood pressure medication, and uh, and they they synthesized MDMA. I didn't really know what to do with it and just kind of shelved it. That was 1917. Okay. Sometime in the forties. Um, I think the U S looked at it as a kind of a, you know, mind control drug or whatever. And they thought that it might be useful for something, but they didn't find anything useful for it. And they dropped it. And then, uh, Alexander Shulgin, who was a research chemist from Dow chemicals. He had, uh, he had made a, a pesticide for them, which they were very pleased with and made a fortune on it. So they gave him a research laboratory, said you can do what you want. Well, he was interested in magic mushrooms and the benzene, benzene ring. <clears throat> so he started looking at creating psychedelic compounds, which he did. And he ended up creating over 300 unique psychedelic compounds oh, some wow. of which have never really been tested yet. Some of them leaked out, you know, 2CB is one of his. Now, what's that? 2CB, it's a hallucinogenic. It's a bit of a wild ride. It caught on in California for a while. But he was the guy that found this old pattern and uh, resynthesized MDMA. And he was doing it with his wife. And they thought, yeah, this is this stuff really has some potential. So he started to uh, give it out to his uh, psychologist and psychiatrist friends. And he was at the center of this large group of uh, therapists. They started using it for relationship counseling and anxiety disorders and, you know, in their in their psychiatric and psych psychological practices and found that it, they could do more on a couple of MDMA sessions than you could do with years and years of conventional therapy. So it caught on and it was being used by, you know, hundreds or even thousands of therapists all across the U.S. until it became illegal because it burst onto the dance scene in Dallas and blah, blah, blah. And then it was scheduled, schedule one drug by the uh, uh, FDA. And um, so then a lot of those, a lot of those therapists carried on underground and, uh, but a lot of them quit because they didn't want to lose their licenses. Right. You don't want to get in trouble for something like that. So, yeah. And then it's only now that it's becoming, uh, there was a, organization called the uh, multidisciplinary association for psychedelic studies called maps started by a guy called rick doblin who uh, about 25 years ago 27 years ago he started looking into mdma as a you know therapeutic drug so they did studies for ptsd well it's been 
It's been 25 years of studies now, and he's just on the brink. It's expected to be a prescription medication for PTSD within the next year or two. And they've been saying within the next year or two for a while, but it will happen because it is at the final stages of approval. And look, I've I've said it on here a thousand times, I think. Um, Psychedelics are the correct answer for anything at, for, as far as antidepressants, PTSD, those type of things, o- only because I have very close family members that have done the other stuff that's out there that they give people that yeah. you know, have built into your system. You can't just come off of it because it no. can kill you coming off of it. And everyone I've known that's done psychedelics, mushrooms, no matter what it is, they all say the exact same thing. They did one or two, and you can correct me on, on this, Jimmy, like sessions or, or rounds or whatever they call it uh, from a medical standpoint. And when it's over with, they're good. I've never called anyone yeah. who had to do, do more than two, more than two, like. Yeah, some of the some of the map studies are you know, getting like 80 percent cure rates. So these are people and the people that they chose to do the studies with are the heart the, uh, the hardest core people so these are these are people that their lives were absolutely unbearable they were suicidal they tried every therapy they tried every drug and they were just at the suicide level you know and they went into these studies and uh you know up to 80 percent of these people and now do not have a ptsd diagnosis so that's that's pretty amazing that's uh, you know it's unheard of in the drug world for a drug to be that effective for, for for that so it's effective for that and it's remains to be seen what else it was is it is effective for but that's uh it's taken a long time to get to this point but uh yeah so it will be a prescription medication pretty soon that's wow and folks if you're just jumping in with us on the on the live here uh and again every wednesday 8 p.m if you want to check out what jimmy's got going on he's got confessions of an ethical drug dealer is one book he's written. The other one is Rave Culture. You can check his website at Jimmy J I M I Fritz F R I T Z dot C A. Or if you go on Amazon, they're located there. Uh, absolutely, Nate. I, that's what I was going to say. Power of nature. Well, what's the? Somebody recently told me the the right term, and I don't. I always forget it. You might know it. And I was curious if you subscribe to this m- mindset of how. Excuse me. How mushrooms are why humans are at the level of evolution we are today it's this idea that the hunter gatherer the stoned ape theory stoned ape there you go thank you terence mckenna came up with that i don't i don't think that's there's any evidence to suggest that really so so you don't so you don't think that that's a well i just i've never seen any evidence that suggested that was true it's just a another fanciful idea from terence mckenna now, well, I, I don't know much about Terrence McKenna. I don't I don't know much of what's going on there. But I think it's interesting, the idea that hunter-gatherers were like, well, if I eat this one, it's going to make me, you know, smell colors. And if I well, eat this that's, one... Yeah, eat- that's, what, uh, that's what psilocybin originally evolved to do, was to prevent you from eating the plant. It's a toxin, basically. It was, it was evolved in the plant to prevent it being eaten. Right, so it's, the plant itself could survive. Yeah, and it may just be a secondary, you know, because you know, um, coincidental effect that it turns our brains on and do it makes our it make rewires our brain basically. It just makes you think in a different way, and that can be really useful. Now, with all these different ones, again, Jimmy, I'm coming to you as the expert, brother, because I've never done any of them. What? How do these? uh, Oh. Well, thank you, my love. My wife says I I look good. Are you talking All to me right. or are you talking to Jim? No, she's talking to me, I think. She might be talking to you, Jim. I know my wife. She's probably talking to you. Uh, <laughs> so so what I wanted to know is with all these different, you know, we've talked about LSD. We've talked about M, M, uh, psilocybin, MDMA, MDMA uh, all these different ones. How do you, like, if you were going to, I guess if for you as somebody who who's 
well-versed in them. How do you explain these? Or if somebody said to you, hey, I'm looking for this or I'm dealing with this. And listen, folks, we're not doctors. We're not pharmacists. We're not telling you this is correct. We're, we're just telling you his personal experiences in dealing with these. How do you like, did you self, maybe that's a better question. Did you self-medicate when you knew something was going on to say, Hey, this is, this is what I'm dealing with. No, I've never self-medicated. I mean, I've never done psychedelics for therapeutic purposes. I've never okay. done them to, to solve a psychological problem because I've, you know, I've had very little of that. Gotcha. I've always felt just fine. So my psych, and I mean, I, they are very effective and they can be, you know, I've seen, you know, people's lives transformed through uh, psychedelic drug use and people that had problems and they did microdosing psilocybin or microdosing LSD. And now they don't have those problems and that's fantastic. And I'm all for that. But personally, I, I use them for, you know, I use them because I enjoy them because it makes it, it, it inspires me. It inspires the way I think. It makes me more creative. I think it makes my life a lot more interesting. <laughs> I bet. So it makes other people more interesting. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, no, I've, uh, I've haven't really used them therapeutically or to medicate. I, I was and now, I'm sorry for a moment. Say, He's just popped in. Say hello. Oh, he, Mr. Hi. Mr. Jimmy can't hear you because I got hello. my earbuds in. He, he, or he, you can't hear him because I've got my earbuds in. But are you going to go finish? We had a special guest. For those of you that are not watching the live, Lucas decided to come downstairs and say hello. All right, watch the glasses underneath there. You want? You good? You going to go finish watching your show? You, you, I have two sons. Okay. One is, uh, one is 38 and one is 40 now. We, we range from age 29 to five and there's eight of them. Wow. <laughs> yeah, we, we, we have, he has, he has uh, nieces and nephews older than him. Wow. So, okay. You good. All right. All right. You got to go, bud. No. Yes. Go, go, go on. Let daddy finish what he's doing. All right. See ya. See ya. Go watch your show. Uh, and my wife did say, Jimmy, she was talking about you. I know. Uh, yeah, I, I, I felt it. Yeah. I, I look. I expect. I expected nothing less. And thank you, Nate. My beard is looking good today. Yeah, I, I did go point. see the. Bar I saw the barber today. Now, Nate brings this up. Were you ever into the weed scene at all, or was that more like? Eh, yeah, like, you know, I, I uh, outlined my uh, my uh, adventures in in weed and uh, confessions of an ethical drug dealer. I mean, I the first drug I smoked was hashish. When I was 15, you went right for it. So that was the beginning of my psychedelic journey. And that's one of the first stories in the, in the book. And then, uh, you know, it goes all the way through, but yeah, I used to, I used to grow marijuana. I grew, I grew marijuana for about 15 years and, uh, did quite well at it. Why'd you, huh? Why'd you stop growing it? Um, it was a lot of work, you know, and also at some point, because there was so much, pot around it was it was uh you could make as much money buying buying pounds and selling ounces as you up. could growing it so it became more and more expensive you go and it's it's a lot of work you know you can't it doesn't just grow itself you've got to keep on it you've got to be there every day and uh so it's it's kind of intensive but i had a good what time doing it for me? as for as long as i did it i did it for about 15 years and quit and that was like probably 25 years ago oh wow and i grew some uh i grew in north carolina for a while with a friend of mine uh and we were gorilla farming so we had these patches all around Asheville, north carolina i know Asheville. yeah right. we had six patches so remember you know the billy graham center there uh, okay well one of our patches was called the billy graham patch because it was <laughs> on their on their land <laughs> in the woods look God made these plants. Billy can't be mad about that. I know. <laughs> uh, well, I have an aunt that uh, used to live. Well, actually, lives in Asheville right now. And, and look, you know the the college up there, which is uh, Appalachian State. Their mascot looks like um, what's his name from the Grateful Dead. Um, the Jerry leads. Garcia. He looks like Jerry Garcia. So you can't be mad at, right. at any group like that. So 
you know, we're getting ready. To, we'll be closing the bar up here shortly there, Jimmy. But I wanted to ask you, so have you done any speaking tours with this book? Anything like that? Um, I've, I've done quite, I did quite a lot of podcasts for uh, Confessions. Okay. And I'll be doing a lot more podcasts because i got a new book coming out uh, next week. What's coming out? A new novel. It's called The End of Everything. And it's about a guy in a mental asylum. It's about a character called Fritz who's a, in a mental asylum plotting his own suicide. And he's ranting about the world and what's wrong with it. Sitting out a typewriter. Like old school, key, straight up keyboard typewriter. Yeah. And he's it's in an ambiguous time frame. It might be in Russia or an Eastern Bloc country. It's kind of Kafka S. Dostoevsky, Herman Hess type thing. I loved it. I with a dash it. of with a dash of Vonnegut and Tom Robbins, maybe. <laughs> I it's a lot of it's a lot of different writing styles there, but I yeah. love the idea of like sitting there ranting about the world, plotting your own suicide in a place that is there to prevent you from doing exactly that thing. Yeah. But liable to make you think of it more. Right. Li liable to make you think of it, designed to prevent you from doing it while you're sitting with a keyboard planning it. Yeah. That's sort of what I do anyway. <laughs> That's interesting. What so I made sit you around typing and ranting about the world and thinking about suicide. <laughs> now, now, one of the things I notice is you don't have a, you don't really have a social media presence, like no Instagram. I didn't really, I saw some Facebook things. Uh, any particular reason by that? Or was it just my failure? Um, I was on, I was on Instagram for a short time and it just drove me crazy. I just thought it was a complete waste of time. It was completely devoid of any content or purpose or meaning or, you know, it just, there was nothing there for me. It was just fluff. It's all just superficial fluff. I didn't see anything worthwhile in it, so I canceled. It took me hours and hours to cancel that. You try and cancel an Instagram account. You'll, really? I get all these Google workarounds, and it took hours and hours, but I, fi I finally nuked it and uh, obliterated it. And TikTok, you know, is even worse, I think. TikTok is even more vacuous and devoid of any, any, any content. So, uh, yeah. I have no interest in those in those platforms at all. They're just distractions in life. They just they don't give you anything. They just suck you suck you dry. Well, it's funny you bring up TikTok. I was just talking with some friends. Uh, I don't know how much of the U.S. news you're you're following, but they're trying to ban TikTok here in the states. Yeah, I think it's a good idea. <laughs> and, and what's so funny to me is is their logic though. We need to ban TikTok because they could they could influence the election. And they could be collecting our information and they could be like basically Chinese spies. And, and it makes me laugh because I go, you guys realize there's like five major media companies on the entire planet. Yeah. That control everything we see here yeah. and ingest. You do you really you're, you guys are just pissed that this one you don't have control of this one you don't have control of. And now you're mad about the whole thing. Yeah. Well, you know. We, do we need more social media platforms or less? I don't know. If we're going to ban one, I'd take out TikTok and Instagram <laughs> and do away with those. I think we'd be better off without, especially young people. I think they'd be a lot better off without them. Well, that's that whole thing about how um, the entire, when they take Instagram away from kids and yeah. have them like really, truly detached from it, their self-worth, uh, changes and they they see more of a higher value in themselves as a person nate says we need more nate i just need more so that people can find this show and and listen to it that's the only reason i need it i that's my whole point for it is you know are you coming on and watching the show and everything so well if the content is there then you know it's worthwhile right it's just a medium it's the content but uh the some of these platforms just they just seem to be there's no content. That's uh, what I found with Instagram. Just going swipe, 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 swipe. Just nothing. There's just nothing on there. You're, you were just drawn it, drawn into it. Just you're you, drawn I, in, even though there's nothing there. It's weird. 
but no, yeah, I... they're addictive and and they're you know predicated on this algorithm that's trying to you know create uh, drama and, and, and conflict and uh, I don't think that especially for young people I think they're really destructive. No, I I could definitely see that. Uh, Nate and I put out a ton of content. Yeah, absolutely. But you know what, Nate? It, it's an interesting point though <clears throat> that social media is just the opposite of you could almost say for what jimmy is interested in good drugs and bad drugs depending upon the person and what they're doing with it social media is that good drug or bad drug how yeah. do you, how do you ingest it how do you process it like you like we were joking about the brown acid from from the uh, documentary are you processing it properly is it produced properly is it coming to you in a way that's benefiting you or is it coming to you in a way that you're going, you know, I'm having a bad trip. You know, the, the lamppost is talking to me about, you know, mine come for some crazy shit like that. It's, it's an interesting outlook you got there, Jimmy. So anything you got coming up, any events, anything where people could watch you? Uh, I know they should watch this podcast thousands upon thousands of times over and over and over, but anything you got coming up, uh, not specifically, and I'll be I'll be doing more podcasts coming up about when my book is. Uh, I'm going to get copies on uh, Tuesday, okay. And then I do a final kind of uh, uh, typo run, and then uh, I'll be uh, it'll be published on Amazon and uh, Ingram Spark and Google Books and Apple Books and everywhere you can find books on the internet. And what's so the when, name of the new book? The the end of everything. The end of so the end of everything is the new book. Yeah. They can obviously still find confessions of an ethical drug dealer yeah. and, and rave culture all. And folks, again, that's Jimmy J I M I Fritz F R I T Z dot C A. You can find all of his stuff there and you've got the, mu the music career. I have to tell you the one, the one time you're standing in, on the cover page of your face of your uh, personal webpage, very Roy Orbison esque that post. Oh yeah, it's the uh, black and white one. The black and white one. I was like, it, it had a very um, Andy Kaufman meets Roy Orbison kind of vibe to it. Oh yeah, <laughs> it, it, made, I think that makes sense to you because you definitely were holding the guitar like a Roy Orbison kind of vibe, but yeah. because of your shorter hair and everything, had right. a very Andy Kaufman look to it. That's a still from a music video, and there's 24 music videos on my site of uh, original songs. There's also five albums you can download for free. There's also a number of movies and uh, and shorts that I've made as a filmmaker. So there's a there's a, a one-stop shopping for your entertainment needs. Well, you're I, I mean, Jimmy, you're a super super creative person, a, a, and we've got a couple minutes left. Where do you think that creative vibe comes from? Where you're a creative kid? Where you know? I mean, you've got so much. I mean, even the drugs that you're talking about doing are not zombie drugs that i would call like where like no you no you're taught you did creative drugs that normally people would would associate with that where does that yeah, come well, from? i th i think that smart drugs have increased my uh you know engagement in the world and my my creativity i think it has been enhanced by uh by psychedelics and uh that's that's the main reason that i use them i guess is to stimulate the mind but i've I mean, done a lot of traveling and a lot of uh, reading and uh, those things kind of stimulate creativity too, I think. Were, but were you a creative kid and, and, you know, somebody tried to hold that down or was it just the opposite? You were always told to keep being creative. No, I, I had a horrible time at school. I had a very bad school experience that was, uh, and I just kind of, you know, put my head down and try to get through it. But as soon as I left school at 15 and I went traveling, that everything changed. That's when I started my life, really. I didn't get anything from school at all. No, j just the ability to waste the time. Yeah. But see, I don't, I don't disagree. I'm a very, you, you said 10th grade. I've said it for a long time. I believe that we should, most schooling should stop at 10th grade and then let people determine what's right for them. If they, if yeah. their college mindset, let them supply something for prep school and then go off to college. If right. they're a trades mindset, set them up for trades and then go on. Don't keep pushing the same narrative for every single person because it doesn't make sense. No, it doesn't. 
and it just yeah and i felt like i you know could have left a couple of years earlier <laughs> and been better off but uh you know that's okay i made up for lost time what was it you know and this god jimmy you have such a fascinating life i want to know about the travels we only got a couple minutes any particular well, place that in you this book there's 50 years of travels there's 24 wow. different countries and that's confessions and, uh, of an many psychedelic experiences and that's confessions of an ethical drug dealer did you, I, I haven't i haven't read the book yet but i got well ask. you're in for a treat in india did you make it to india yes did you have hashish in india yes hashish and uh, what was uh, that i got to ask what was that like hashish in india uh, they have good. They have good hashish. Yeah, it mostly comes from uh, Nepal, but uh, yeah, there's lots of good hashish, and they make cakes with it and uh, cook with it, and uh, so they smoke it in chillums, great chillums with scarfs wrapped around them, and they go boom, Shiva Shankar, <laughs> get great clouds of smoke. What is Very that? Dramatic. Wait a sec. I don't even know what that means. What does all that mean? <laughs> it's all Hold about on. smoking. Smoking hashish. Like, hold on, you just opened a whole world. <coughs> so, we can do another it, hour on chillums. What? what it, I, tell me what a chillum is, because I don't know what a chillum is. Chillum is a conical-shaped uh, piece of wood. It's like a just a straight pipe, basically. And then you pack it on the top, and then you wrap a, a, a wet rag around the bottom, and you put it in your mouth, and then you light the top, and just smoke mass quantities of hashish in a very short period of time wow that's wild like i didn't even and i don't know enough about it again i've watched a little bit but hashish is a is it a derivative of marijuana yes no yes yeah, the resin of the marijuana plant it's it's marijuana yeah so but it's, it's like concent concentrated form because it's most of the THC is in the resin, and when you t take that off and press it and and then smoke that, it's much more concentrated than just smoking grass. Jimmy, I, I didn't even know that was a thing, what you just talked about, a chillum and everything. Yeah. You just opened my mind to some a whole new world. Like, that's some shit I ain't never even heard of. All right. Look, see, look at that. I didn't have to do any psychedelics, and my mind was open. Exactly. There you go. You just have to talk about psychedelics to open your mind. That's, that's it. Fantastic. It and is free. Completely. Look, folks. What a it, good deal. It, if I've not taught you anything over all these episodes, uh, there is so much there. Uh, no, uh, Hendrix was, uh, well, yeah, Hendrix LSD. They always said Hendrix kept, we used to put dabs of uh, acid under his headband and from the yeah, story. I don't know if that's true. Maybe that was always the 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 story. Everybody thought Jimi Hendrix was on LSD constantly because he played like he was on LSD. Yeah. But I think he just could play like that anyway. Yeah, the guy was. Well, most Americans don't realize that Jimi Hendrix was huge in France and overseas. Yeah, yeah. Well, he made it first in England. I mean, he was he made it in England first, and then he came back to to America as a already a hit. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until he played the national anthem at Woodstock that people kind of went, that dude's pretty awesome. You know? A lot of people thought he was awesome before that, but that was a high point for sure. Yeah. Well, I'm talking about in the States. Most people in the States just yeah. didn't have the right understanding of his music. So, so Jimmy, we're going to get ready to close the close the bar up here. Folks, look, okay. go check out uh, jimmyfritz.ca, and that's J-I-M-I-F-R-I-T-Z dot C-A. Everybody needs to order a hundred copies each of uh, Confessions of the Ethical Drug Dealer. Everyone needs a hundred copies of uh, Rave Culture and the new book. One more time, Jimmy. The end of everything. The new coming book. to a bookstore near you soon. Any minute now. Any minute. Like if you go tonight to like a Barnes and Noble and camp out front of the Barnes and Noble, you can get the first copy of it. Uh, no, it's, it won't be available online until probably another month. Well, I guess you're asked out, folks. But you have uh, to wait a month. <laughs> wait a month and look everywhere. It's going to be everywhere. And I just love it's the It's going to go viral. I love the concept. Now, folks, again, if you're finding finding Jimmy through us, make sure you give us a like, follow, share. I can't explain to everyone enough. Listen, 
that rating that you give us on Facebook or LinkedIn or whatever media you found us through, that rating you give us, that follow you give us, is how Jimmy's story gets out. That's how Jimmy's books get found. That's how people see what he's got going on and make it important. And same thing here with all the different guests that we have on and all the different things we have happening. So make sure you give us a like, follow, share. That is of value to us. Again, every Wednesday, 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time is is the show. Make sure you're, you're joining us. Next week, we're talking uh, paranormal. Uh, that's a whole other thing, Jimmy. My That's a whole other thing. Jimmy, my equipment breaks every time. Don't get time me started I, on the paranormal. Oh, you, Well, you make sure you join us next Wednesday, 8 p.m. Come listen. <laughs> okay. You can, you can interact with us live. I'll make comments. Please make comments because <laughs> that's what I, my equipment ends up breaking every time I have somebody on with paranormal. And our friend Nate, who was asking some questions, Nate has actually gotten into some uh, ghost hunting, and he's with the Paranormal Funhouse. I bet he never found a ghost. I don't know. I have to ask him. Nobody ever found a ghost yet. <laughs> you know, it's you know, well, at least nobody's ever had. I just not them. in the history, not in the history of the world. You know, just that. I, I found him. That's a whole nother story. So don't log off on me, okay. Jimmy. I got to talk to you for just a moment after the show. All right. Uh, we have one thing, and I know you've listened to all 170 some episodes. So oh, that's all I do. That's all you do. I understand that. So this is one of the things we do with every one of our guests. The guest always gets the final word on every episode. What is the final word from you, Jimmy? Uh, the final word is uh, be nice to each other. Alrighty, folks. Be sure to push your stool in. This has been an Earplug Podcast presentation found on EarplugPodcast.com, iTunes, SoundCloud, and wherever your favorite podcasts are found.